how could the embarrassing death of Jesus on the cross, how could that be the event that saved the world? You truly would have to be foolish to believe it. That's the question that many of my unbelieving friends and the statement they have following it, that's when they ask, when they consider Jesus and the cross and Christianity and what it means for their life because the reality is the category of the cross, it doesn't fit comfortably into their worldview. Like why would God make this faith thing, this salvation thing, why would he make it so cryptic so mysterious if he actually wanted to save them? You can think about their question this way. When a product is tailored towards an event or it's tailored towards a customer, the product essentially sells itself. Like you can't keep it stocked on the shelf because you can't produce the thing at a faster rate than you can or then people want to obtain it, right? You can't keep up. And so the thing sells itself. You can't keep it stocked. It's kind of like plywood in a hurricane. Everybody needs it. All of a sudden, you go to the hardware store, and there's nothing left to be had. It's like toilet paper in a pandemic. And this, that's a nightmare for many of us, <laughs> a nightmare we don't want to relive. That's real world right there. It's like evergreen trees at Christmas time. It's, this one maybe not apply to us as much, that's okay. It's like rapid COVID tests these days. It's like you can't, there's not enough of them. You can't get them. I, I hear that problem's going to be fixed as well. Or it's like w- whenever you're checking out at the grocery aisle, you have your cart full of groceries, vegetables, and fruits, and breads, and things to make these delicious meals. You have your kids or your grandkids around, and what is at eye level? something like this. Now, have you ever noticed, and that's intentional, by the way, they put it even at a lower level so little hands can grab onto it, but have you noticed not only do they put the sugary thing, things that we desire as kids at hands level, but just look at the marketing of this, the bright colors, the loud noises and crinkles that it makes in your hands, all things that stimulate a child's mind to say, I want it. It's a product that sells itself. And honestly, whenever you think about this, and you think about this point about faith and salvation, my unbelieving friends, they kind of have a point. Like you would think when God strategized salvation, he would have offered a plan so appealing that it would just sell itself. There would be no need for preaching or teaching or pleading, or seeding, it would just fly off the shelves, and you wouldn't have to do anything. When God thought of salvation, why didn't he give us something that was always out of stock? Because God seemed to have done the opposite in many ways. Like the means by which he forgave us our sins, and cleaned up our lives, and made us his children, and set the world right, it doesn't sell itself. In fact, it oftentimes it set up an initial repulsion, right? Listen, I'm self-centered. I'm weak of spirit. I'm selfish. I struggle to do hard things. So you think when God strategized my personal salvation, that he would have given me a sugar-coated hype that I easily would have obtained. 
a problem that was evident and a solution that was clear. But the message of the cross, it's not palatable for human taste. For most of us, the cross, it clashes with where we are in our life. It doesn't match our current way of living. I remember whenever I was first introduced to Jesus, I was in high school. I remember being given, given a Bible, and I actually carried it around high school. I was one of those kids. But I carried it around high school, and any chance I had, I opened it up, and I just read the stories because I was genuinely curious. I was curious in Jesus and these stories in this Bible I never heard before. But if I'm honest, I was also really curious about a girl I was talking to at the time. Being vulnerable, I was too curious. And I remember at one time, I actually stopped carrying my Bible around the high school because I respected Jesus. I even loved Jesus. But his message and his way of life, it clashed with my current way of life that I wasn't ready to give up yet. The message of the cross, it's an offense to human rationale. And that's exactly how God designed it and planned it to be. You see, God doesn't want salvation flying off the shelves so that it can be tucked away in the back pantries of our lives only to resurface in times of convenience or crisis. The cross is designed to be an affront to everything that you hold dear, to shake your status quo, to put you face to face with your pride and your values. And in a culture where image has become everything, let's be honest, the local church, we have become guilty of catering to this you-centered message. And the reason we do it is a hope of being relevant, right? And listen, you all know me. I'm not opposed to being relevant. We have to take a changeless gospel into an ever-changing world, right? I mean, in fact, we as a church, Everything we do is catered around being relevant, right? We take, we, we want to help everybody love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourself. To go make other followers of Jesus that are called disciples. And everything we do as a church, it hinders on those things. But we cannot allow the mission of relevance push us away from the repulsive message that Jesus was born so that he could die, excruciating death on a Roman cross. God knew that relevance does not produce righteousness. Instead, your salvation, it required a sacrifice. And on the cross, relevance gave way to holiness. So the cross... You know, they kind of have a point. The cross isn't relevant to the world. It's not relevant to my unbelieving friends. Honestly, like, let's just be honest. It's not really even relevant to my life. It's foolish. It's offensive. But that will not dissuade us from preaching Christ crucified. All it means is that we won't always be relevant or important or consistent to those outside of Christ. You know, years ago, Richard Newber, a theologian, he once said and warned of a church that preached a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. 
And that reality and that warning is exactly the warning that Paul gives. In 1 Corinthians, this book we're working through, the first chapter, starting in verse 18, I encourage you to open your Bible, read these words with me, Paul's words. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He comes out swinging. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Rhetorical question, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews, they demand a sign. Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified. And that, that is a stumbling block to Jews. That's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Listen to this in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And the scandal of what I just read, it's difficult for later Christians like us to fully embrace and understand. Like, to talk about a crucified Messiah is to talk utter nonsense. Like, I might as well tell you that the earth is flat, that monsters are living under your bed, that the Cubs will win another World Series in 100 years. That one's for you, Tracy. (laughs) And if you're not familiar, crucifixion, it was a gruesome punishment created and administered by the Romans And its entire purpose was to make an example out of rebels. That was its purpose. The cross was not like we've made it out to be today, where celebrities get it tattooed on their forearms, where baseball players make a cross before they step up to bat, where manufacturing companies make chocolate versions of it that we can indulge in around the Easter season. No, the cross was a horrible form of torture and execution designed so that nobody should defy the powers to be. And yet, here Paul declares that the crucifixion of Jesus is somehow the event through which God has triumphed over those powers. So rather than confirming what the wisest heads already know, the crucified Messiah, it shatters the world system of knowledge. The Jews, they're looking for deliverance. The Gentiles, they're looking for aesthetic learning and reason. You are likely looking for something different, and all of us are given a crucified criminal on a cross. And Paul was, had a relentless focus on the cross. He, he has a relentless focus in 1 Corinthians, but in all of his letters. And the reason he does is because he realizes that this gospel message, it insists, it insists upon 
each of us undergoing a conversion of imagination. Meaning, all of our values, everything we hold dear, how we interact with the world and people, our worldview, the way we make decisions, everything we hold to value, it has to be transformed by the foolish and weak death of Jesus on a cross. In other words, what God did on the cross is what he's doing in the world. He's overturning expectations. But shouldn't that be what we expect? As Jesus followers and those who know the story of Jesus, we should recognize God as one who overturns expectations. Like when the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was born to the most powerless and insignificant person, a poor young female, that that would be the vessel that God was born into the world. He was overturning expectations. Like when Jesus, in his most famous Sermon on the Mount, begins it by saying that the poor and the hungry and the mourning and the hated people would receive blessing. We call it the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. He was overturning expectations. God doesn't do things the way we think he should. Baseline. And that tension... That tension, you can see that tension when you have conversation, genuine conversation with people who don't believe, who don't recognize God as the Savior of the world, don't recognize recognize Jesus as the, the crucified Messiah. They see that tension. God doesn't fit their expectations, and they're right. God's not like us. He is wholly different. And although not put exactly in these words, here's what their argument looks something like. If God is perfect and good, he should have revealed himself to us more clearly. He should have given us a Bible that was less open to interpretation. He should have eliminated evil and suffering from the very beginning. You have likely heard arguments like that. You have likely had arguments like that, even if they're in the back of your mind. And all of it can be rephrased simply. If I were God... I would have done things differently. Yeah, in comparison to our enlightened reason, God's actions are seen as wanting and deficient. Our preferences, our wisdom, our rationality, our expectations, those become the standard in which God has to submit or he's considered false and untrustworthy. There seems to be no place left in this world for humility. No place left in this world for somebody to recognize the limits of human ability and rationale. There's no place left for a genuine, I don't know. Because if you don't know, it's considered untrustworthy. (laughs) But the irony of it is that is exactly what Paul says is the purpose of preaching Christ crucified so that no one might boast in the presence of God. So as you reflect on 1 Corinthians in these passages, as you consider your struggles and your disappointments and your victories and your faith and your hope, remember, God is God and you are not. Jesus' death on the cross, it was simultaneously foolishness to the wise in this world 
and a demonstration of the power and wisdom of God to those of us who believe. He doesn't always do things the way we might expect or the way we might want, but when it comes to God, shouldn't we expect the unexpected? Faith in God certainly doesn't make you safe. Safe as in it's going to create a, a magical bubble around you that keeps you from all danger, that eliminates all doubts and fears, that gives you the answer to your problems at the exact T that you want them. It doesn't make you safe, but faith in God makes you secure. Why can I say that? Because God is faithful and good. Because we can trust him and worship him even when we don't fully understand. Imagine this. God keeps all of his treasures hidden behind an ugly, uncouth, uncultured cross. And if we're willing to embrace the cross, then we have access to the almighty wisdom of God. Did you know the word crux comes from the English word crucifixion? And that is exactly where the crucifixion should be in our life. At the crux of everything that we do, every decision that we make, every promise that we hold, every relationship that we are in, we preach Christ crucified. Because without the cross, Jesus is robbed of his significance. If Christ crucified can become more than just a good man in your life, he will give you something that man cannot give you. If Christ crucified can become more than just another world religion, then he will give you something more sustainable than the world can offer you. But if you are here and you solely rely on the wisdom of the world, what you've always known, what you've always been told, the way it's always been done, then none of this is going to make sense to you. Then the cross doesn't make sense to you. And that is exactly how the devil is going to keep you distant from Jesus how he's going to keep you away from your relationship with him. He's going to feed into those doubts. He's going to keep you on the paved path, fleeing away from the gruesome side of the cross because it doesn't quite fit comfortably in the mold of wisdom that the world has given you. Those doubts, they were planted in the Garden of Eden. We're going to talk more about that in our Core 52 class immediately following service. But the devil is going to continue feeding you exactly what you want to hear and keep from you exactly what you need to hear. And if you're still here and you still think that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of celebrities or the wisdom of politicians or the wisdom of whoever the experts are on an issue, that that is what the world really needs, then ask yourself one simple question. How far has the wisdom of, world, of the world gotten you? How far has the wisdom of the world gotten us? Are you any less anxious than you were before? Any less angry? Any less worried? Any, you feel any less stressed? Because the wisdom of the world, is it really that much better than what God has to offer you? Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. That is the indispensable path to wisdom right there. 
Become a fool so that you can become wise. And Paul is not merely saying that if you seek wisdom, you're going to be seen as a fool. No, that's not what he says here. He says, you must happily embrace the role of a fool in the world in order to receive and become wise. We must be ashamed, not be ashamed of being a fool for Christ. So to be a faithful Christian, to be obedient to God's word, to be truly wise in the eyes of God in Corinth and Athens and Vero Beach, Florida, we must become fools. Thoughtful fools, hopeful fools, happy fools, not self-pitying, dour, defensive, forlorn, miserable fools, but unashamed, happy fools. And the crucial question this brings up in your life that you need to wrestle with right now to determine your future and honestly the future of this church is will we be ashamed? Will we be ashamed of believing what the Bible teaches when the world calls us fools? Or will we out rejoice the world not only in spite of, but because of their insults? Will we be like Paul, who said, for the sake of Christ, I am content with insult? Will we respond like the apostles when they were shamed as fools in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, and it says that they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be shamed for the name? Will we obey Peter's letter to rejoice if you are insulted for the name of Christ because the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory now rests upon you? So I exhort you, go, find wisdom, become a fool, a thoughtful, hopeful, happy fool for Christ. So if you're here this morning, or if you're listening to this later, and you've not approached, you've not yet approached the brutality of the cross and accepted it as your mode of salvation, you have an opportunity this morning. If you're here this morning or you're listening to this later, and you have a mountain of excuses of why now is not the right time to take your next step closer to Jesus, you have an opportunity this morning. If you're here this morning, you're listening to this later, and you have been off the path for quite some time, paving your own way, but now you're realizing you're a lot more lost than you thought you were. You have an opportunity this morning. What is your opportunity? Maybe for you it's to accept Jesus, the crucified Messiah, as your Savior from the darkness of your heart and your only hope for eternity with the Father. Maybe your opportunity is to be saved by Jesus in the waters of baptism. Baptism is bowing down before the Father, letting him do his work. Christ's death becomes my death. His resurrection becomes my, resur my resurrection. It's a public declaration that I am mine no more, that I am utter willfully and utterly his. Maybe your opportunity is to join a family of Jesus followers here. And if you do, here's what I can guarantee, that you will be, as a part of this family, you will be radically loved. You will be cared for generously. You will be built up weekly. Maybe for you, your opportunity is simply just to be called to something so much greater than this world has to offer. And listen, that's not a sales pitch. 
That's the gospel. And so if you're ready to grasp your holy moment this morning, Tracy, myself, our elders, we are going to make ourselves available to you. We will pray for you right in that moment, right there, whoever's around, we will pray for you if that's what you need. We'll sit down and listen to you. You can sit in a pew or we can go to a private room and we'll just listen to your story and your hurts and your journey. We'll serve as a guide to help you move towards one more step closer to Jesus and whatever that looks like for your life. So what I would like to do as we close out is I want to say a prayer specifically for everybody who's on the cusp of making a life-transforming decision this morning. I don't know who you are. I don't know what that decision is. I don't know how big or small of a leap it looks like for you. But as a church, this prayer is for you. For you to finally make a decision. For you to take hold of the opportunity. For you to stop saying no and finally saying yes to Jesus. As a church, let's pray. God, we give ourselves to you. And God, we say a prayer over whoever it is this morning that needs you, that needs this body of prayers. God, that needs to feel and experience your salvation. God, that salvation, it is both cryptic and simple. Something we don't fully understand and something as simple as come to me, all who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus, You promised us you are the way and the truth and the life that nobody comes to the Father except for you. God, we submit ourselves to that promise. God, whoever it is this morning that needs to step towards the cross, accept it for their life, that needs to submit themselves to you either through baptism or repentance or whatever it looks like, God, we pray that you will receive glory that you solely will receive glory. And God, whenever the rest of us leave this building, let the world know that we are your followers by our love. We say this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The church said, amen.